0: Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. I want to thank our distinguished uh, witness for being here and our, our panel that's coming after this. Uh, we appreciate all of the input on Ukraine we can get. And uh, to our Secretary, um, you've been up here on a number of occasions, and I think you know that Congress has tried to support Ukraine in their efforts. We've passed uh, several pieces of legislation that have become law, All of them have been focused uh, on the fact that we've been concerned, really, um, uh, at multiple levels and with differences. But generally speaking, we've been concerned about the lack of support for Ukraine, um, some of which uh, has emanated uh, from the administration. Um, We know that you've been a strong voice Sometimes your rhetoric, and, and uh, we've had some discussions about this, has been beyond what the administration is actually doing, and we've had conversations about that. But we know that you're a career servant, and we appreciate the role that you play, uh, certainly in the region and, and, uh, and throughout Europe. Um, but again, our, our focus in the past has been to make sure that we're doing the things that we need to be doing to, to support Ukraine. Today's hearing's a little different. And that is that there are some things that Ukraine needs to be doing itself. And let's face it, uh, had Ukraine 20 years ago uh, really tried to focus on some of the same issues the rest of Europe had focused on, then it would be in a very different place. And so we have a country that has tremendous reforms that need to be put in place. Uh, There's an agreement that has been negotiated, uh, um, You know, a lot of concerns about Russians Adherence to this agreement, Minsk II, parts of it though require the country of Ukraine to be taking steps itself, Um, and so you know we're at a point now where I think Congress again has been pushing heavily, uh, pushing the administration to be more involved in helping Ukraine. Um, We're at a point now where where there's a balance, I guess, that we're seeking, where Russia still is doing those things to create a, uh, a frozen conflict, if you will, in eastern Ukraine. At the same time, there are things that Ukraine needs to do for its own good. I do want to say, as an advertisement, we had as part of one of our bills the uh, the IMF reform. And uh, we were unable to pass a bill that dealt with that. But through the omnibus process, uh, our office was able to work with the Treasury Department to put in place our IMF reforms that uh, now has caused us to to live up to our obligations with the IMF. And let's face it, the IMF is playing one of the biggest roles in causing Ukraine to be able to move ahead with reforms by the carrot and stick approach that they're able to employ. But again, we appreciate you being here today. I think you know there are concerns about uh, uh, Ukraine's own ability to fight corruption, uh, to deal with the economic issues that need to be dealt with inside the country, the fiscal issues. Uh, Certainly, there have been some bold steps that have been taken, some isolated bold steps. At the same time, we've had some resignations from people who feel like that those steps aren't enough or feel like they're being marginalized. Simultaneous, again, simultaneously, we have a Russia, Uh, that continues to aid some of that corruption and at the same time do things uh, on the eastern border that keep the Ukrainian government sort of off step and not able to fully focus on their own internal issues. This hearing today hopefully will give us a much better sense of what type of pressure the United States should be placing, where we should be, uh, as it relates to Ukraine today. We thank you very much for being here, and with that, uh, I'll turn it over to our distinguished ranking member and my friend, Ben Cardin.
1: Well, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman, and thank you for the way that you've got our committee engaged in what's happening in Ukraine and Russia. Uh, it, it's truly been, I think, uh, the appropriate oversight by the United States Senate. So I thank you very much, and particularly for this hearing. Secretary Nuland, I thank you for your incredible service to our country. It's an interesting day for you to be here with the chief emissions in town. I don't know if that's good or bad that you can escape them for a little bit. But anyway, it's, uh, I know that you're very busy, and we very much appreciate you taking time to be with us today uh, to go over the uh, critical next step as it relates to uh, Ukraine and U.S. policy in Ukraine. Uh, since the Maidam de- demonstrations in 2013, the United States supported the people of Ukraine and reformers in the government as they with- withstood Russia's illegal annexation of Crimea, and Russia supported violence in eastern Ukraine. Russia continues to wage war in the east. The popular sentiment in the West is that the ceasefire is holding, but I see reports of Ukrainian soldiers being killed and the overall level of violent attacks increasing. Tanks in the region circulate without restraint, while observers from the OSCE are severely limited in their movements. I understand that the Ukrainian friends must implement political elements of Minsk, constitutional reforms and elections, but we also must see commensurate progress from the Russians on the security and political fronts. The United States and EU should maintain and even consider strengthening robust sanctions on Russia until it fully implements the Minsk agreements. Despite the persistent threat from the East, events over the course of the last few months have demonstrated that Ukraine's central struggle lies within. Earlier this year, Ukraine's reformist economy minister resigned due to the government's inability to root out entrenched corruption. The deputy prosecutor also resigned, citing similar concerns. There has been progress in the reform movement. There's no question about that, but it has been too slow. This committee has held several hearings on Ukraine since the start of the crisis that have sought to identify the security, economic, and technical assistance the United States can provide to help support Ukraine's internal reforms as well as fight against Russia. Over the course of this time, the United States has committed $760 million of assistance to Ukraine, including security assistance. Ukraine's parliamentarians responded by passing critical pieces of reform legislation and have dramatically improved Ukraine's microeconomic situation. The government should be commended for reducing public expenditures by 9%, cutting the budget deficit to just 2% of GDP uh, from 10%, undertaking reforms of the energy sector to eliminate energy subsidies, and floating an exchange rate to eliminate Ukraine's current account deficit. Earlier this year, Parliament passed broad-based tax reform, and the government adopted a budget for 2016 that is in line with the IMF requirements. So while Ukraine has made progress on the economic reforms, it has been hampered by entrenched interests that wish to maintain the corrupt system upon which they have built massive fortunes. I again call on Ukraine's leaders to show courage and resolve Uh, in in pursuing uh, progress against corrupt individuals who wield influence in the country. I believe the United States can play a role as well as exposing and pursuing corrupt Ukrainian officials who use U.S. financial institutions to direct their ill-gotten gains. As an important step was taken when General Prosecutor Prosecutor Shokin resigned earlier this year, But Parliament must now accept his resignation, and this must be followed by a commitment to take concrete steps towards judicial reform, civil service reform, law enforcement reform, and a transparent and open privatization process of Ukraine's 1,800 state-owned enterprises. The Ukrainian people have suffered under multiple corrupt regimes and took to the streets to demand good governance, democracy, respect for human rights, and rule of law. The current government while having made substantial strides on the path to reform is struggling with corruption. Simply put, the government is moving far too slow on the reform process. It is imperative that the government re-energize the reform process, or it will lose the support of the international community, and more importantly, will lose the support of the Ukrainian people. Mr. Chairman, I look forward to hearing from the Secretary and from our distinguished guests on the second panel.
0: Well, thank you for those comments, and I think that uh you know, I, if I could get to the essence of what many of our concerns are, and we express these directly to leaders who come here from Ukraine and those that we visit there, I think we're at a point where we're concerned about these sanctions in Europe being continued. Uh, we want them to be continued. Obviously we, we consider Russia to be the villain in this process, but we're worried that without Ukraine taking steps forward to, to do the things that they've agreed to do, that Europe will view them as the reason that the Minsk II agreement is not being put in place. And that will fracture Europe's ability, if you will, to continue working together to keep those sanctions in place. So again, uh, thank you for being here today. Uh, our first panel witness, uh, as we've stated, is the Honorable Victoria Newland, commonly called Toria who serves as the Assistant Secretary for the Bureau of European and Eurasian Affairs, U.S. Department of State. We thank you for your distinguished service for our country and for being here today. And with that, if you'd summarize your comments, in about five minutes or so, uh, without objection, your written testimony will become part of the record. Thank you.
2: Well, thank you very much, Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Cardin, members of this committee. Your bipartisan support, your visits to Ukraine, The assistance you have provided have been absolutely essential to the American goal of supporting Ukraine's democratic European future. Uh, Before I begin today, let's just take a moment, if we may, to honor the sacrifice of Ukrainian pilot and RADA deputy, Nadia Savchenko, who was seized in Ukraine in 2014, dragged across the Russian border, and unjustly held and tried in Russia. Today, her hunger strike continues as the court in Rostov again delays an announcement of its verdict. Nadia's struggle is a stark reminder of the pressures Ukraine continues to face, even as it works to build a stronger, more resilient country for its citizens. I want to thank this committee for its continued focus on Nadia Savchenko and all Ukraine's hostages, and for the passage of Senate Resolution 52. We call on Russia to release her immediately and return her to Ukraine and to her family before it's too late. Like Nadia, all across Ukraine, citizens are standing up and sacrificing for the universal values that bind us as a transatlantic community. For sovereignty, for territorial integrity, for human rights and dignity, for clean and accountable government, and for justice for all. The United States has stood by Ukraine, as Russia has sought to stymie its democratic rebirth at every turn. Today, however, as you both mentioned, Ukraine's European future is put at risk as much by enemies within as by external forces. The oligarchs and kleptocrats who controlled Ukraine for decades know that their business model will be broken if Maidan reformers succeed in 2016. So they're fighting back with a vengeance, using all the levers of the old system, their control of the media, state-owned enterprises, RADA deputies, the courts, and the political machinery, while holding old loyalties and threats over the heads of decision-makers to block change. Against this backdrop, Ukraine's own leaders have been locked for months in a cycle of political infighting and indecision about how to restore unity, trust, and effectiveness in the reform coalition and how to reboot the government and its program. Every week that Ukraine drifts internally, that reform is stalled, IMF and international support goes undispersed, and those inside and outside the country who preferred the old Ukraine grow more confident. The ability of the United States and the international community to continue to support Ukraine depends upon the commitment of its leaders to put their country and their people first. So all those who call themselves reformers in Ukraine have to work harder now to rebuild consensus behind a leadership team and an IMF and EU compliant program of aggressive measures to clean up corruption, restore justice, and liberalize the economy. We continue to believe that 2016 can and should be the year that Ukraine breaks free from the unholy alliance of dirty money and dirty politics, which has ripped off Ukrainians for far too long. But without that, Ukraine risks sliding backwards once again into corruption, into lawlessness, into vassal statehood. But here's the good news. Uh, Since I last testified before this committee about five months ago, Ukraine has stabilized its currency. It's rebuilding its reserves. It passed its first winter without relying on Gazprom gas. It approved a 2016 budget that's in line with IMF requirements. It passed civil service reform. It broke its own record for wheat exports. It stood up an anti-corruption bureau and a special prosecutor. And it began to decentralize power and budget authority to local communities. The very week that, in February that the current government survived a no-confidence vote, RADA deputies also approved five critical pieces of legislation to stay on track with IMF conditions and EU uh, requirements for their bid for visa-free travel, and they passed another piece of legislation uh, just today. U.S. assistance has been critical to all of these efforts. Uh, As you said, Mr. Ranking Member, we've committed over $760 million in assistance so far, plus two $1 billion loan guarantees, and U.S. advisors serve in almost a dozen Ukrainian ministries and localities, helping to deliver services, eliminate fraud and abuse, improve tax collection, and modernize Ukrainian institutions. With U.S. help, newly vetted and trained police officers are patrolling the uh, the streets of 18 Ukrainian cities. In courtrooms across Ukraine, free legal aid attorneys funded by the U.S. have won two-thirds of all the acquittals in the countries. Um, Treasury and State Department advisors have helped Ukraine shutter over 60 failed banks and protected the assets of depositors. And since there can be no reform in Ukraine without security, over $266 million of our support has been in the security sector, training 1,200 soldiers and 750 Ukrainian National Guard personnel, and supplying life-saving gear. In FY16, we are continuing that training and equipment of more of Ukraine's border guards, military, and Coast Guard. But it is urgent that Ukrainian President Poroshenko, Prime Minister Yatsenyuk, and the leaders of the Rada come together now, behind a government and a reform program that deliver what the Maidan demanded, clean leadership, justice, an end to zero-sum politics and backroom deals, and public institutions that serve Ukraine's citizens rather than impoverishing them or exploiting them. In 2016, our U.S. Assistance Program, with your generous support, is designed to support all of these priorities. Specifically, we will support Ukraine as it takes further steps to clean up its energy sector, to appoint and confirm a clean and new prosecutor general who is committed to rebuilding the integrity of the PGO and indicting and prosecuting the, the corrupt. Uh, as it takes steps to improve the business climate and move ahead with privatization of state-owned enterprises and strengthen the banking system and strengthen judicial independence, and to improve services and eliminate graft in areas that affect every Ukrainian, including healthcare, education, transportation, and also to modernize the Ministry of Defense. (coughs) Of course, Ukraine's greatest challenge remains the ongoing occupation of its territory in Crimea and Donbass, and its effort to restore sovereignty in the east through the full implementation of the Minsk agreements. These agreements, we believe, remain the best hope for peace. Last time I came before this committee, Ukraine was in a better place. The September 1st ceasefire had largely silenced the guns, and some Ukrainians were even beginning to go back to Donbass. But as you both have said, today things are heating up again. Uh, We've seen a spike in ceasefire violations taking the lives of 68 Ukrainian military personnel and injuring 317. In February alone, the OSCE monitors reported 15,000 violations, the vast majority of which originated from the uh, the, separatist-controlled side of the line of contact. And despite President Putin's commitment to the other Normandy leaders, Russia and separatist forces continued to deny OSCE monitors access to large swaths of the Donbass. At the early March meeting of Normandy foreign ministers, Ukraine supported concrete steps to pull back forces from the line of contact, to increase OSCE monitors and equipment in key hotspots, and to establish more OSCE uh, bases deeper in the Donbass and on the border. Taking these steps now and releasing hostages would greatly improve the environment for compromise in Kyiv on election modalities and political rights for Donbas. In the meantime, though, neither Moscow nor the self-appointed Donbas authorities should expect the Ukrainian Rada to take up key outstanding political provisions of Minsk, including election modalities and constitutional amendments before the Kremlin and its proxies meet their basic security obligations under Minsk. Here again, with will and effort on all sides, 2016 could be a turning point year for Ukraine. If security can improve in the coming weeks, if more hostages can be returned, if the parties can finalize the negotiations on the political issues of Minsk, we could see legitimate leaders elected in free fair elections in Donbas by the fall and the withdrawal of Russian forces and equipment and the return of Ukraine's sovereignty over its border before the end of the year. We will keep working with Ukraine to do its part to implement Minsk, and working with our European partners to assure that Russia stays under sanctions until it does its part, all of it. And of course, Crimea sanctions must remain in place so long as the Kremlin imposes its will on that piece of Ukrainian land. Mr. Chairman, Mr. Ranking Member, members of this committee, we always knew that Ukraine's road to peace and sovereignty, to clean and accountable government, and to Europe would not be easy. Today, the stakes are as high as ever. With strong leadership in Kyiv, 2016 can and should be a turning point year for Ukraine's sovereignty and its European future. If and as Ukraine's leaders recommit to drive the country forward, The United States must be there to support them. At the same time, we must be no less rigorous than the Ukrainian people themselves in demanding that Kyiv's leaders take their own responsibility now and deliver a truly clean, strong, just Ukraine while they still have the chance. I thank this committee for its support for Ukraine and for a Europe whole free and at peace. I look forward to answering your questions.
0: Thank you very much for that testimony and for your efforts on our behalf. I'm going to focus on one issue and then um, save the rest of my time for interjections along the way. But on the the issue of the sanctions that we, along with the European Union, have put in place against Russia, uh, there's no question is there that Putin is sowing some degree of discord there and that keeping those in place beyond June is something that's very important to see this through. Is that correct? Absolutely. No question that, um, or at least my observation would be that uh, the announcements yesterday in Syria by Putin relative to the withdrawal, we don't know the size and scope of that yet, although it sounds like it could be fairly sizable, uh, is intended to somehow influence that. Is that correct?
2: Um, We continue to look at the Syria theater and the Ukraine theater as two separate places. We will judge the Ukraine action based on what is done in Ukraine, and as you know, the sanctions are linked to Ukraine. So from our yes, perspective, what is done in Syria should not impact choices about Ukraine.
0: But do you not agree that uh, Putin is is trying to be perceived as someone who's working well with the international community, and, and uh, in essence, uh, some of his actions are intended to hopefully over time cause the European Union to, to break apart relative to their uh, uh, resolve, if you will, relative to the sanctions.
2: I, I think there's no question that he is lobbying hard inside Europe to come out from under sanctions.
0: So as we meet, if you could give us guidance, um, as we meet and talk with Ukrainian officials, I think uh, everyone on this committee has uh, certainly uh, uh, understands what happened on the Maidan, understands the the what is taking place in Ukraine heralds that, but at the same time there are concerns about the progress, that's what this hearing is about. If you were to look at the Minsk II agreement, what are the pieces of that that are in Ukraine's hands that that maybe Southern Europe or components of Europe might look at and say, well, Ukraine is not fully doing the things that it needs to do and therefore maybe we ought to consider lightening up Ukraine. What are the things that worry you the most?
2: I think what's worrying me the most is is are the comments that we hear from some parts of Europe that as week after week Ukraine is unable, Ukraine's leaders are unable to come together behind a refreshed government that the country is drifting, that there isn't the will to drive forward with Ukraine and therefore there probably won't be the will to implement Minsk. We don't agree with that, but it is causing doubt in Europe about whether continued support for Ukraine is warranted.
0: And if you were, um, you know, with our many interactions with the country, uh, obviously we've passed legislation. I know that the administration is working to support efforts. The IMF is doing the same. Um, What uh, just the formation of that government itself, the continuation, is in essence the most important thing that we can push for. Is that correct?
2: Absolutely, but not just coming together in terms of reloading the government, but reloading the government and the leadership coalition in the Rada behind an aggressive program of IMF-compliant reform. There is, as I said, a lot still to do. Uh, so they have. Not, it's not just about the people; it's about the program.
0: Thank you. I'll reserve my time, Senator. Pardon.
1: Well, again, uh, thank you very much for for your testimony. I, I want to follow up on what Senator Corker is referring to because it seems to me if Europe does not extend the sanctions and we have not, if Minsk is not implemented, uh, and if Europe does not, is not willing to extend the sanctions in June, it has profound impact on Europe, let alone Ukraine. Uh, Here we are seeing uh, Russia's influence in Europe for its nationalist sentiments growing, and we've seen that in some of the recent elections in some of the European countries, Uh, So I'm deeply concerned that uh, our strategies during the next couple months need to be focused on European unity and focused on the culprit in in Ukraine, which is Russia. They're the ones who caused the current uh, uh, violent activities that are taking place in that country. So I want to focus on how we can be more effective. And getting Ukraine to implement the critical reforms that they have not been able to do. Uh, I agree with you. The economic reforms, the budget, the monetary, that's been, they've been on schedule doing a lot of important changes. And this winter without the reliance on the the energy issue, that's a huge change in behavior in, in the country at incredible cost politically. And it's not an easy thing to implement these changes. But the oligarchs still control the political process. And when a country is coming in towards reform, you always have the problems within the civil service that you need to root out the corruption there by adequate budgets and paying civil servants adequate salaries. But in Ukraine, the problem stems from the top, and that is the relationship between the business interests and the political system to preserve a corrupt system which the elitists benefit from and want to continue to benefit from. How does the United States be more effective in rooting out that type of corruption and supporting leaders in that country that take the brave stands and the right stand that the people of Ukraine want? How specifically can 2016, you say it could be a great year, what can the United States do to make 2016 that type of a year?
2: Well, the first thing that we do is what we've done throughout this, which is to peg our assistance to those things that the IMF and the EU need to see for reform. So in particular, uh, we have uh, pegged our uh, next $1 billion loan guarantee first and foremost to having a rebooting of the reform coalition so that we know who we're working with, but secondarily to ensuring that the prosecutor general office gets cleaned up. As I said, the current prosecutor general, as you mentioned, has, re- has resigned. We need to see a clean model citizen who is really going to take justice forward in Ukraine, appointed there and confirmed. Uh, we need to see the next stage in um, de oligarching the economy, if that is a word. And, and by that, uh, it, it's some of the things that I mentioned, including privatization of these state owned enterprises that are used to siphon off money. It is cleaning up the tax service, the customs service, all of these places where um, money is siphoned off. It's creating transparency in media holdings and these kinds of things. Uh, it is shoring up the banking system further so that it can't be used to. To rip people off, um, it's it's strengthening a, private agriculture, uh, so that agriculture can't become um, uh, can't can't persist as an oligarchic haven, uh, and, and more unbundling in the energy sector, and all of our assistance programs are designed to support uh, those concrete steps as Ukraine takes them. But if they don't take them, then we won't be able to disperse in those areas.
1: Let me ask you specifically about judicial reform the judiciary historically in Ukraine has not only been a facilitator of corruption, it's been a source of corruption. Right. So what do we do to specifically hold Ukraine accountable in judicial reform?
2: Well, as I said, the first thing is to see that the prosecutor general's office gets cleaned up. We have advisors in that office which have helped us to better understand what needs to happen. It will start with new leadership. It will start with uh, a review of all the justices. We're also supporting the constitutional amendments uh, to the judicial uh, aspects uh, of Ukraine's uh, leadership. It's passed the RADA in the first uh, reading and needs to pass in a second reading. That will help create more accountability uh, for justices, more transparency in terms of their, their own ownership, et cetera. And we're doing a lot of judicial retraining and would like to do more.
1: As I also understand, in Ukraine there's a history of loyalty to, of judges to particular political interests rather than to an independence. Uh, Are the reforms aimed at giving judges the independence they need to make independent choices rather than just following the will of the political elite?
2: Well, as you know, Senator Cardin, because you've been a champion of this ac- across Europe, uh, it is a long process, but absolutely, and it starts with uh, transparency in their in their own financial holdings. It 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 also goes to stress testing uh, the the qualifications of all justices. It goes to Uh, breaking the uh, link between politics and their appointments, all of those kinds of things that we've had to do in other, had to support in other parts of Europe, and we're really just at the beginning in Ukraine.
0: Thank you.
3: Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Perdue. Well, it's good to see you again. Thank you for being here, and your testimony is always uh, very uh, direct and uh, enlightening. I also appreciate your recent trip to the um, European Defense uh, Conference in uh, Munich. And, um, and some of your off-the-record comments were very helpful. But I want to talk about two things that I didn't hear talked about there, and I know you have a heart for both of these. But I'd like to get just an update for the committee. One is Crimea, and the other is Georgia.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, you know, it's hard to believe it's been two years but <clears throat> since Russia um, went in and illegally annexed, in my opinion, uh, Crimea and uh, have basically cut them off from uh, their Ukrainian uh, news and also internet providers and so forth. Uh, Russia's submitted their control of Sevastopol, um, their warm water port there, and in, conde- in in connection with what they're doing in Tartus and Latakia in uh, Syria, as well as uh, Kaliningrad and Murmansk, it's easy to see what Russia is doing and why Crimea is so important to them militarily. My question is very simply, can you give us an update um, about where we are with Crimea, is it an active conversation about returning Crimea to Ukraine, and what other pressures can we put on Russia to, uh, to actually entertain a, a conversation about ret- uh, returning Crimea to uh, Ukraine?
2: Well, thank you, Senator. We obviously share your concerns not only about uh, what is happening inside Crimea and human rights for citizens, and particularly minority populations, uh, but also the militarization of Crimea, which has a an impact. Um, So the primary lever that we have are the continuing U.S. and European Union sanctions that preclude any investment by any of us in Crimea and uh, put under sanctions any entities that would try to trade. So again, the theory of the case here is that if you bite off a piece of another uh, country's territory that it dries up in your mouth.
3: Is it the position of the administration though that Crimea and the occupied portions of eastern Ukraine are all one and the same in the conversation with regard to the sanctions in in Russia?
2: Well we're pursuing them in parallel but separately the Minsk Accords uh, govern how the Donbas conflict could be settled and sovereignty could be returned to Ukraine. Uh, We have made clear that we will never recognize uh, Crimea's occupation and incorporation into Russia, and that sanctions will stay in place until uh, that is resolved.
3: Good, thank you. That, that clears that up. Let's talk about Russia just a minute, or Germ- uh, Georgia just a minute. Um, you know, it, it's a, I guess, technically a frozen conflict, a, as some people term it, and Russia has a history of creating these frozen conflicts. Uh, w- w- you know, it's hard to also believe it's been eight years since uh, Russia uh, invaded uh, Georgia. And now today, eight years on, one-fifth of Georgia's territory and uh, about a third of the population resides in Russian-controlled territory uh, within Georgia. Our own state of Georgia has a National Guard relationship uh, and a partnership with the the country there. And I know there's some forward-moving activities this uh, spring uh, in Georgia. And I've spoke recently with our own uh, adjutant general about uh, their efforts there. Can you give us an update? Um, you know, their defense minister, Georgia's defense minister, Tina uh, Kadish-Shelley, Kata- um, and, and she's talking about ongoing concern, this is the former uh, chief, I guess, the, the recent occupation of the territory, and what efforts we can make there to bring that back into an active conversation. Well, I understand these are part of the sanctions, but uh, can you give us an update on that frozen conflict?
2: Well, thank you, Senator, and thanks for what Georgia does for Georgia. It's a great partnership, um, and the Georgian uh, people of Georgia very much appreciate it. Uh, I think you know that in the early days of the U.S. and and the the NATO partnership with Georgia, our security assistance was primarily directed towards helping Georgia to deploy with us to Afghanistan and other other places, make them interoperable, able to uh, go at distance, etc. We have in in the recent period both in US assistance to Georgia and in NATO assistance to Georgia as we head towards our NATO summit in Warsaw reoriented that assistance uh, on the security side at Georgia's request to help strengthen resilience self-defense address their concerns about uh, not only the continuing um, uh, Abkhaz issues, but the the fact that uh, there may be efforts to move the lines, etc. So we're very much focused on the self defense aspects. Do we uh, oppose? Now in that the, sorry,
3: do we oppose the Russian effort to put that uh, rail line down to Armenia through uh, occupied Georgia? Uh,
2: the the Georgians are trying to work with the Russians now on a more appropriate um, rail link that can be of positive benefit to everybody and not exploit the situation. One thing I would say, though, is that we have encouraged uh, the government in Tbilisi to continue to reach out, particularly to the people of Abkhazia, and to help them to benefit from the new arrangements that they have with Europe and ensure that they increasingly see benefits from those kinds of arrangements um, which stand the chance to make Abkhazia far more prosperous than anything Russia has to offer.
3: Well, in meeting with uh, Defense Minister from Georgia, uh, Katie Shelley, she's the current, not, not the former, but the current uh, Defense Minister, she's very concerned about that rail line, as I'm sure you yep. guys are aware. One last question with the time remaining. Um, if Let's go back to, to Russia. Last year, uh, the administration had um, uh, Ambassador Paula Dobryansky, uh, former Under Secretary of State for Democracy and Global Affairs, actually proposed to this committee, to the West imposed an embargo on spare parts for Russian oil refineries. Uh, I know this is getting in the weeds a bit, but as, as we look at having these sanctions have more bite in Russia, uh, and that to actually get them to moderate their activity, um, Russia's heavily dependent on Western spare parts for their refining industry. Uh, is this something that we're thinking about? Is this a possibility um, for things like pumps, compressors, catalytic agents, and so forth within their refining industry?
2: Uh, Senator, as you know, we have maintained an active list of the kinds of future sanctions we might need if Russia were to go further in Ukraine, et cetera. I, I will uh, talk to you, if I may, in a separate setting about those kinds of things.
0: Okay, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Shaheen.
5: Good morning. Thank you for all of your work on a daily basis and for being here this morning, Secretary Newland. Um, I wanted to pick up on Senator Corker's question about the impact of Russia's actions in Syria and how that affects Ukraine. I I was in Ukraine with several other senators back in October, Mm -hmm. Um, and it was shortly after Russia made its move into Syria, and the Ukrainians that we talked to were convinced that that was a diversion and that once they decided to leave Syria, they were going to be refocused back on Ukraine and um, heat up the conflict in Ukraine again. So, don't we have to assume that that whatever Russia is doing is going to have some impact on what happens in Ukraine?
2: Well, I would I would argue, Senator, that as I said in my opening, that in recent weeks and months we've seen a good level of low-level violence perpetuated primarily by Russia and the separatists, they support on the line of confl- conflict. So it never really calmed down in, in Ukraine. I think the world's attention has been more focused on what Russia has been up to in Syria. So I think the question becomes whether there'll be more bandwidth now to pay attention as well to what's happening in Ukraine.
5: Um, you talked about a number of things that need to happen in Ukraine, the kinds of things that you mentioned, judicial reform, uh, reducing the influence of the oligarchs in the economy, um, agriculture reform, the whole list of things. Mm -hmm. Those are things that take time. Mm -hmm. And as I'm watching what's happening in Ukraine, people want to see something happen now. So as you assess where things are, what's the most important change that you think would have an impact on the public so that they would feel like there's positive momentum there to address their concerns.
2: Uh, improvement across the board in the justice system so that individual people feel like justice is served, locking up some big corrupt fish, including some folks from the Yanukovych era. Improving services, you know, people are still ripped off when they go to the hospital, when they try to get education, etc. cetera. Uh, things that impact human beings, that's why the police reform has been so impactful because everybody sees it on the street. Uh, But also cleaning up graft in the tax system, in the custom service, uh, because, uh, you know, everybody trying to do business gets ripped off at every stage. And then uh, really beginning, as could happen in 2016 and 2017, to first create transparent boards for all of these state-owned enterprises and then to privatize them.
5: Um, So are we concerned by the IMF's decision to delay their planned disbursement of debt assistance to Ukraine, that that will have a negative impact on some of these initiatives?
2: I think the IMF, like the U.S. government, doesn't have a choice right now, so long as we are not sure who our partner will be on the other side of the table.
5: Um, And how... How aware do you think President Poroshenko is of these realities? Uh, let me And let me just preface that with, when we were there in October and we met with him, he was all about, we've got to address corruption, but when we said to him, you know, that starts with you, um, he, he didn't seem to have any, didn't acknowledge any awareness that um, that, that was important to setting a, a model for the public.
2: I would commend to you the speech that Vice President Biden gave on the floor of the RADA in the middle of December. He couldn't have been clearer or more public about what our support depends on. I also joined his meeting with President Poroshenko in Davos uh, where the same points were made, and he's made the same points in uh, repeated phone calls over the last couple of weeks with both President Poroshenko and Prime Minister Yatsenyuk, as has Secretary Kerry in his meeting with President Poroshenko at Munich.
5: Um, Again, I also wanna explore some of the issues that have been raised relative to um, Russia's continued narrative that Ukraine is the problem with resolving Minsk too, it's not Russia. what more we can do to um, support Ukraine, assuming they can take the steps that we're Mm -hmm. interested in, um, but to try and change that narrative in Europe. And and let me just ask as part of that, uh, obviously the challenges that Europe is facing with the migrant crisis and um, certainly the impact that that's had in Germany on Chancellor Merkel how does that affect her focus on what's happening in Ukraine and resolving Minsk too?
2: Well, just to start with the, the last part first, uh, we've been very gratified by the Chancellor's incredible resolve with, with regard to Ukraine and her willingness to call it out honestly in terms of who's at, at fault and to support uh, real negotiations on how to, how to implement Minsk. Um, as I said in my opening, uh, the, the number one thing here is to st- stop the violence on the line, get OSCE access all the way to the border like they're supposed to have. We've been uh, encouraging the Ukrainians to listen to some of the ideas that the OSCE has had because the forces are too close in certain hotspots to pull them back, get more OSCE. Uh, in there so that it is more obvious when the firing starts where it initiates from make it harder uh, for separatists with Russian support to mask uh, the initiation of violence. That's one thing. Um, Second, uh, to continue to support the negotiations that France and Germany are doing on election modalities under Ukrainian law and compliant with OSCE standards. Uh, that include things like election security, that include free access to media, et cetera, because without those things and without a a clear, obvious evidence to the RADA that these are going to be Ukrainian elections, not some fake elections, uh, they won't be ready to support uh, the underlying legislation. So we're working on all of those things. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman.
0: Thank you. I, I do want to, I want to thank Senator Sheen for her line of questioning and, and uh, go back to the comments you made about how we look at Syria as mm-hmm. one issue and Ukraine as another. Uh, while in Munich, and I know Senator Perdue and several other people were there, um, General Breedlove reiterated the point that he's made to me on multiple occasions, is that's the problem with U.S. policy right now, is that Russia looks at what's happening, they look at the entire blanket we tend to look at little patches and deal with them as if they're independent and not connected to the other. And that's why Putin, with a small amount of resources that he has, a country that's, faced it, its economy's in shambles, has been able to have the impact that they're having right now on Europe. And I would just say, Europe's at the lowest level of self-confidence probably seen in modern times. And he's had a huge effect on that, so again, I appreciate your comments about Syria and and Ukraine being different. Russia doesn't view it that way. And they're looking at the entire portfolio in a way where they've been very successful and they've undermined our interest in the region by doing so. So I would just ask that, instead of looking at them separately, we we look at them as a continuum and realize that our NATO policy, as General Breedlove says so forthrightly, and everything else we're doing in Europe We have to look at the entire blanket and not look at these as isolated issues. With that, Senator Brasso.
2: Senator, may I just quickly say that I didn't mean to imply that we don't look at the totality of Russian actions and intentions. Of course we do and how the things interact. My point was simply because they're withdrawing or have said they're withdrawing troops in Syria should not mean that we let them off the hook in terms of sanctions vis-a-vis their activity in Ukraine. That was my point.
0: I understand that's us. I'm just saying that when he's used refugees Mm -hmm. as a weapon of war, Mm -hmm. uh, when he's done the things that he's done with energy and other, uh, other assets that causes him to have leverage over Europe, all of these things are playing a role in weakening Europe's resolve relative to these sanctions. With us doing $50 $50 billion a year in trade with Russia and them doing $450 to $500 billion a year in trade with Russia. Obviously, us helping them keep that resolve in place is very, very important. And, again, I think Putin is looking at the entire blanket as he looks at these issues and hoping that somehow in June he's going to be able to break down Europe's resolve uh, in combination with the other things that he's doing in the region, with that, center Veras.
6: Uh, Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Great to see you again, um, Madam Secretary. I I agree with Senator Corker. Putin has been very obvious. His objective is to restore the former Soviet Union and show his strength. Everything else, as Senator Corker just pointed out, they're just tactics to do that, and it's very aggressive and and, uh, opportunistic, and no matter where he's playing that game, Uh, That's, I think, based on his objective and everything else is attacking. We ought to take a look at the overall objective. And with regard to uh, Vice President Biden's statements in December, uh, with regard to Crimea, he made the the speech and he said, let me be crystal clear. He said the United States does not, will not, never will recognize Russia's attempt to annex the Crimea. So what additional sanctions should we put, put in place? What actions is the administration taking right now to press for the return of Crimea?
2: Well, Senator, to, uh, just to say that our sanction regime vis-a-vis Crimea with the European Union is pretty much complete. We don't allow any investment, any trade by any of our people. We don't allow, um, you know, tourist travel or any of that in, in Crimea. So it really is a Investment free zone for all of us, and we will continue to maintain that that strong regime. We also try to speak out as we as we learn about uh, what's happening inside, and particularly human rights abuses against minority populations, expropriation of libraries, those kinds of things. We, yeah,
6: we it doesn't seem to be having the the intended effect. So I'm just looking to see what additionally can be done.
2: I think we'll continue to look at what else we can do.
6: The uh, with regard to energy security, I wanted to visit about. We've seen Russia. They continue to demonstrate over and over again willingness to use energy resources as a weapon. Uh, and uh, Putin's used Russia's natural gas to extort, to threaten, to coerce our allies as well as our partners. Uh, the international community saw Putin use natural gas as a political weapon against Ukraine 2006-2009. So talk a little bit about uh, support the the United States could have in assisting Ukraine to advance its energy independence, to support energy diversification uh, and reforming in the, in the energy sector, because it continues to be a problem in my trips there, visiting with folks uh, on the ground, energy and the ability of Russia to control uh, and command has a, has a huge impact.
2: Uh, well, first, just to say that en- uh, that Ukraine has made – really terrific progress on the energy front. As I said in my opening, this was the first winter that they didn't have to depend on Gazprom gas, which, you know, for those of us who follow Ukraine, is, is, is pretty miraculous. There is obviously much more work uh, to be done. They've, just to go through some of the things they've already done, they've taken the first steps towards unbundling the state-owned company, separating it into two entities uh, with our, uh, by linking our assistance to their willingness to take energy steps. We've now uh, encouraged the establishment of an independent board of uh, NAFTA gas. They've begun to increase gas tariffs to market levels if they need to. They're improving the corporate governance of NAFTA gas. Uh, Next, they have to fully unbundle the market. They have to liberalize it. They have to privatize more of it. They have to establish an independent regulator, which is one of our main reform requests at this next stage. Um, They need a separate electricity market law. They have to do more to harmonize with EU regulations. So we have assistance in the 2016 budget to help them do all of those things. Uh, But again, it's going to depend on having uh, a strong government committed to those things that's unified behind them.
1: You know,
6: When I was there, they were asking about us exporting some of our uh, LNG, yeah. LNG. We have mm-hmm. certainly an abundance in this country, and we right. should be using this as a master resource that it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you agree that natural gas exports from the United States can serve as an important diplomatic tool for us to strengthen our national security and assist our allies in helping them? alleviate some of the manipulation of the threats from Russia?
2: I absolutely do. And now that we have reverse flow gas uh, back into into Ukraine It's very important. We have folks all over Europe hoping some of that gas that's now available will make it whether it's to Lithuania or Poland or other parts yep.
6: yeah. Well, they've built that uh, regasifier with the exactly. independence that uh, that has been not built, but brought into the into the into the waters to be able to Right. They're just waiting for us to be able to, to export.
2: And I think you know that we have, for the last two years, worked really aggressively. I have, as, as has Secretary Kerry and Secretary Moniz and, and Amos Hochstein, our special advisor, on all kinds of projects to help diversify uh, European energy markets and, and make uh, um, the, them more open to uh, other forms of gas than Russian gas. I'm mean,
6: going to bring this up to date, if you could. I was just thinking in the middle of December. Uh, ambassador to the United Nations Samantha Power said Russia continues to violate ceasefires um, daily and uh, in October General Breedlaw told reporters that what we what we have not seen is Russia removing any of its forces from the Ukraine and he said you have not heard me report at this podium before command and control air defense artillery uh, uh, spotting support artillery support personnel supplies all still supplied to Donbass by Russia. Uh, are these assessments still true today as they were in October and they were in, in December and is Russia continuing to send its mercenaries, its troops, its tanks uh, into Ukraine?
2: Uh, absolutely, we still have um, hundreds and hundreds of pieces of Russian heavy equipment in Ukraine. We still have thousands of Russian forces and support in Ukraine.
6: So Russia is currently in violation of its political agreements and ceasefire commitments to Ukraine.
2: So those forces and that equipment will have to be withdrawn before Minsk is fully implemented. Yes. Yeah.
6: So are there additional things we should be doing to again, as I asked the question regarding to Crimea, I asked the same question with regard to Ukraine. Are there additional things we should be doing? You said we've done everything we can with Crimea to stop all the you know with the sanctions, but it doesn't seem to have the impact that we'd like. Anything additionally we should be doing with Ukraine.
2: Uh, on the security side, I think the training that we've now been doing for more than a year with Ukrainian forces has helped to give them confidence, has helped to give them better uh, understanding of how to defend their territory, how to um, uh, how to handle the line of contact to the best of their ability. I think what we need to do now, as I said in answer to Senator Shaheen is help to get forces separated enough so that we can get more OSCE in there and we can truly demonstrate who is starting it when these flares ha- happen. But we also have to push for more OSCE all the way up to the up to the border because there are large parts of Donbass where we have no eyes and ears still.
6: And then in terms of prepared to provide lethal aid?
2: Uh, so as you know, there, no decision has been made on that, but we are continuing to train and we'll have a big training budget for 2016 as well.
6: Thank you, Mr. Chairman.
0: It's my understanding just for what it's, thank you for those questions and it's uh, sad to me that we haven't made a decision yet. Um, It's been several years now. But it's my understanding our training also is not really helping them in any offensive way. It's all about defensive issues. Is that correct?
2: Well, again, we haven't provided Lethal assistance, but we have. But they
0: book. have some lethal capabilities they themselves. It's my understanding that one of the big complaints in the region is they have assets, but we're not really helping them relative to any kind of offensive training that might need to take place. Again, being concerned that uh, Russia might view us as being proactive uh, more so than they would like to see. But with that, Senator Menendez. Thank
7: you, Mr. Chairman. Um, Madam Secretary, thank you for your service. Uh, You know, I I want to explore uh, a a bit of a different set of questions here. Uh, And they're premised on the fact that I strongly support and have said in my visits to Ukraine, as well as uh, those who have visited from Ukraine to the United States, that there is a need to continue vigorously on the path to reform, uh, and not only to pass laws, but to implement them. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I, I totally believe in that. However, I also uh, understand the realities that if I was sitting in the equivalent of uh, our Congress there, rather, and seeing what the Russians are still doing and talking about doing all of these things, including um, the decentralization legislation, I don't know how far in that process without reciprocity uh, that I'm going to be able to succeed mm-hmm. at the end of the day so uh, you know i i look at uh, the eve of the second anniversary yes. of russia's invasion of Crimea which is March 16th and I believe that russia maintains control by one means or another over the autonomous regions which it seeks to fortify uh, in one way or another ceasefire violations are on the rise i look at your own written testimony and you talk about OSCE monitors reporting 15,000 violations in February alone, the vast majority which have originated on the separatist controlled side of the line of contact, is your testimony. Uh, and I wonder, the, while we are focused and rightfully so on getting the Ukrainians to do what is necessary to reform, that the other side of the equation is lacking. And so uh, the administration, and you have often here talked about four pillars support financial, technical, non lethal security assistance, support other frontline states from Russian aggression, raising economic costs for Russian behavior, and leaving the door open for diplomatic de escalation should Russia commit to its commitments. And so, in that regard, on the third pillar, raising economic costs for Russia's behavior, It still seems to me that our efforts are not creating the conditions where Minsk can be successful. And we've heard from many Ukrainian officials who have circulated to the Senate uh, about their challenges with this. And I think one of the reasons we saw a a vote of non-confidence take place, although it was ultimately beaten back, but thinly, that we have a great challenge there. How can we expect Ukrainians with all the obstacles they face, not the least of which is occupation by hostile and violent foreign forces, to muster the political capacity and capability to meet their Minsk obligation when Russia still controls parts of Ukraine and holds military superiority and is not meeting, from my perspective, their elements of Minsk. And secondly, as a corollary to that, I'm concerned to read in Jeffrey Goldberg's recent Atlantic article entitled The Obama Doctrine where the president said, quote, the fact is that Ukraine, which is a non-NATO country, is going to be vulnerable to military domination by Russia, no matter what we do. Uh, now, I'm not sure how well that was received in Kiev, uh, And I certainly hope uh, that we have not resigned ourselves to that. That's going to be the reality at the end of the day when we don't, when we train, but we train uh, in a way that doesn't provide uh, lethal assistance for the uh, ability to self-defense. because nobody believes that the Ukrainians are gonna go invade, you know, Russia, right? So, but for self-defense, to give night vision goggles to be able to see the enemy, but not be able to do anything to stop them. Well, that's that's pretty uh, challenging. So uh, I'm really concerned that on that one pillar between the president's comments and our actions, that we are undermining the rest of the pillars at the end of the day. So speak to me about that.
2: Well, first on Ukraine's ability to meet its obligations, as I uh, tried to set out clearly in the testimony, before the Ukrainian RADA can be asked to pass the next stage of political, agreements for Donbas, whether it's election modalities, whether it's the last reading on the constitution, we've got to see Russia and the separatists meet their obligations in terms of security. So we clearly see a sequence here for Minsk. Um, it's in that context that we are, as I said, trying to encourage the Ukrainians uh, to work with the OSCE to put forward these ideas of pullback so we can continue to help them demonstrate where the security problems lie. But, you know, for months and months and months now, the Russians have been saying that they will give, they will ensure that their proxies give full access to the territory, to the OSCE, and that still hasn't happened. So, um, you know, this has to happen in the sequence that it was agreed at Minsk, and that's what we expect of the Ukrainians. At the same time, uh, we're working with them to ensure that as they negotiate Uh, the terms of what an election might look like, that it also truly meets the Minsk obligations, that it be under Ukrainian law, that it be OSCE compliant, and that we not be having some kind of fake election out there. Um, With regard to the security assistance that we're providing, uh, you know, our assessment is that the training that we're offering first to the National Guard, now to the regular army and to the special forces, um, have uh, manifestly improved their self-defense capability, their unity of command, etc. Let me
7: stop because I have less than a minute left. You haven't satisfied me about what we are doing to get Russia to move on its obligations. And I know I hear that you say, we expect that the sequencing will happen in the uh, manner in which Minsk envisions, but the reality is I hear a lot about the Ukrainians and what we expect the Ukrainians to do. Right. What I don't hear virtually anything about is about getting the Russians to live up to their obligations. And it just seems to me that if we saw progress on the Russians living up to their obligations, that we would see greater political will in the Ukrainian congress the rada to achieve the things we want them to do but largely i get the sense this is a pretty unilateral uh, pressure get the ukrainians to do which we i agree they should do some of these things but there's no question that doing them without the countervailing rea- with a countervailing reality of russia as it exists today is an enormous challenge and i i i get a sense we've sort of like you know moved on and that's a problem and that's a problem
2: Senator, I have to just disagree with that premise. The President raised these issues, including the importance of uh, ending violations and allowing full OSCE access with President Putin yesterday. We raised this in every single conversation with the Russians. And, of course, the number one issue is maintaining unity of sanctions with the European Union, which we have been able to do, and making it clear who's at fault on the security side, which we'll continue to do.
0: Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Risch, uh, Ms. Newland,
8: that article that uh, Senator Menendez referred to in the uh, in the Atlant- by the Atlantic Council painted a pretty bleak picture of the situation. Are you familiar with that article? Did you read that? I am. Are you in general agreement that that's a, a appropriate assessment of where things stand today,
2: uh, Senator? I'm not sure that it's appropriate for me to comment on a journalist's interpretation of where the president stands or doesn't stand. I think the testimony that I gave today speaks to where the administration is on our policy towards Ukraine.
8: Well, let me, it says the journalist's issue aside, does the article, is the article generally accurate as far as the current situation in the Ukraine?
2: I'm not sure what aspect you're referring to, but I would simply say that Uh, The president has led on the issue of maintaining sanctions until Minsk is fully implemented, and that's going to continue to be uh, the administration's policy until we see all aspects of Minsk, including return of sovereignty.
8: I wanted to uh, change subjects for a minute. I want to talk about the Open Skies Treaty. Mm -hmm. and uh, Starting February 22nd, uh, the administration has 120 days to make a decision on this upgrade that the Russians have asked for, for infrared and some other things that will greatly enhance their ability uh, when they do overflights in the United States. You're familiar with that, I assume?
2: I am. Mm-hmm.
8: Where, where are you in that process?
2: Uh, there are still interagency discussions going on. We can brief you in a classified setting if you'd like. Yeah.
8: Um, I, I, don't, uh, I suppose it's not surprising to you that there's a lot of angst here in this body and in your own administration regarding allowing that uh, uh, that enhancement, you're aware of that, I assume.
2: I think we would have settled it if it were an easy question.
8: Correct, and I, I can tell you that in the very near future, you're gonna be getting some input uh, from members of this body, and it's going to be not just one-sided, that is gonna be very bipartisan, stating ver- uh, uh, real concerns about it. Are you familiar with the testimony that uh, uh, General Stewart gave uh, in the House Armed Services Committee, the, the, the uh, Defense Intelligence, a- Intelligence Agency director. Are you familiar with his testimony?
2: Forgive me, Senator. I'm not.
8: Okay. He he was pretty tough on it. He he thought that uh, this is a really bad idea. Uh, are you getting that from anywhere else? Have you, have you heard that from any anyone else within the administration?
2: Uh, well, again, interagency discussions are continuing on how to how to manage this. So.
8: The, I, th- I think most Americans would be uh, surprised to hear that uh, there is such a treaty and that we allow actually spy planes to fly, Russian spy planes to fly over the United States and, uh, and do the kind of intelligence gathering that they do. Um, it, the, the, to be fair, the door swings both ways. That is, we're supposed to be able to do the same. But the Russians routinely prohibit uh, flights over the Russian territories in the Caucasus, around Moscow, in uh, Kaliningrad, and uh, some other places. Do we deny them any access here in the United States?
2: Uh, Senator, I'm going to have to take that question. I haven't looked at in a while at whether we've had um, uh, denials of those flights.
8: In your assessment as whether or not you're going to allow this, Uh, Are there discussions going on about the fact that uh, they are routinely prohibiting us from doing what they're doing here? Do you know whether that's the case?
2: Well, we we do try to maintain reciprocity in general. That's what the treaty is about, as you said. So when we have concerns about constraints, we look at how we can ensure that there is a reciprocal uh, response.
8: Who's the lead person in your agency handling this issue? Uh,
2: Would be Undersecretary for Security Affairs, Rose Gottemuller.
0: Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you. Senator
9: Murphy. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. Thank you for all your work. Uh, Madam Secretary, thanks for coming back again. Um, Just to try to square the circle on this question of the Syria-Ukraine connection, because I think it's uh, important to underscore what you said. Um, I I think there's no doubt that there is a connection uh, between, in Russia's mind, uh, between their policy in Syria and their policy in Ukraine, if you ask our – Friends on the ground in Ukraine. They will tell you that when Russia started to move on Syria It was like a a clicker was switched in eastern Ukraine and for a period of time Russia was very focused on Syria and that did mean a diminution of uh, offensive activity uh, in eastern Ukraine but to underscore what you said that doesn't mean right. that we should start blending the boxes together. The worst mistake we could make is to concede that Russia's policy in Syria is tied to our sanctions regime in Ukraine. If you do blend those boxes together, you start to let Europe off the hook. Right. Um, and so I, I, I think I don't think there's really a distinction between, at least as I see it, between um, some of the feelings being articulated by members of the committee and what you're suggesting. We all acknowledge the the, the connection that Russia is trying to make—that um, doesn't mean that we allow for uh, the Europeans, those that are in the sanctions regime with us, to look at it that way as well. Um, my, my question is on this this, this continuing conversation of um, conditionality of IMF and U.S. support. Um, and, and let me be slightly contrarian uh, on this uh, on this fact. Um, I worry that onerous conditions uh, upon our aid uh, and the IMF's decision to do the same thing in some way plays into the hands of Russia. Let's take for example the reforms uh, that we require and that Minsk requires to uh, devolve power to the contested regions. Um, Well, that becomes politically unpalatable the more that Russia Um, inflames tensions along that border. The more people that are killed by Russian snipers, the less willing uh, the Ukrainians are to come together on those necessary reforms. The more news there is um, about uh, uh, Sevchenko um, and her captivity, uh, which of course is controlled by the Russians, Um, her future is controlled by the Russians, the less willing uh, that Ukrainians are to come together to make some of these reforms. Um, So I guess I put this question to you before, but uh, do you worry that um, by placing all these conditions upon U.S. aid that we essentially put the Russians in charge of whether it's released or not because their ability to sort of play politics inside Ukraine um, is maybe most determinative or at least substantially determinative on whether the Ukrainians can actually come together and make these reforms?
2: Uh, Well, Senator, here again, I think we need to split the apples and the oranges. So on the one side there is implementation of Minsk, as you said, where uh, Russia has the ability with their proxies in Donbas to heat up the line and make it politically harder for Ukraine to meet the political obligations it has to Donbas, which is why we have to maintain the integrity of the sequence of Minsk as it was negotiated, that there has to be real quiet on the line. There has to be real access before Ukraine can be expected to take the next steps in the political package on Minsk. That's a different matter than whether we have a strong, unified, govern, uh, governing coalition, uh, unity between President, Prime Minister, and the key rod of factions on the next step of reform uh, for Ukraine internally, the breaking of corruption, the cleaning up of institutions, all of those things. So, uh, frankly, the IMF program is conditioned on Ukraine staying the course on reform and our assistance is conditioned on them being inside their IMF program. So I think we have to become, we have to stay rigorous because otherwise we are just funding the continued oligarchic capture uh, of the country. and those folks are certainly not interested in Minsk either.
9: We're just playing a dangerous game of chicken here, which is that at some point their reserves run out uh, and we will be faced, and, and of course this is the game that Russia is playing, they are hoping to undermine unity inside Ukraine so long Uh, as is necessary to prevent this assistance from becoming real. And so at at some point, we may just have to reconcile our desire to keep Ukraine economically afloat and our desire to push them at the speed that we would like on reforms that are admittedly very difficult, if not impossible, to make while your country is being occupied. Um, My last question is... um, on our committee's path forward here and Congress's path forward as to how we can be most useful uh, in support for Ukraine. There's you know always a, a feeling of paranoia inside Kyiv that the U.S. Congress and the U.S. government is going to focus its attention somewhere else, and I hope that we've answered most of those concerns. But what I hear is that the most important thing that we can do is to pass a multi-year um, assistance commitment to Ukraine, um, so that they know that we are partners with them, not just on the military side, but uh, on the economic and, and anti-corruption uh, programming. Uh, and so, I know there's discussions here about, you know, what a new Ukraine support bill could look like. Um, but isn't some sort of multi-year commitment, isn't some signal that we are, as a Congress, still willing to put uh, money into this endeavor, whether it be in IECA or some other source, uh, a- a- an incredibly important message to send?
2: Well, we very much appreciate the uh, plus-up of IECA and the reestablishment of AICA that we have now. and. Uh, there is some hope in the department at large that it would be flexible enough for all kinds of global contingencies. You know, we do budget on a year-by-year basis, but we always welcome uh, multi-year commitments by the Congress to the projects that we uh, share an interest in, including Ukraine.
9: Great. Uh, Thank you, uh, as always, for uh, your service, uh, an advertisement, again, for our For our great staff inside Kyiv who are uh, continually working uh, uh, 24-7. Ambassador Pyatt got to visit with some of us uh, this week. We're very lucky to have you uh, and to have your team on the ground there. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Murphy. Senator Gardner. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Secretary Newland, for being here in your testimony today.
10: Uh, In September of 2014, President Poroshenko was uh, addressing a joint session of Congress, and I believe he had made this statement urging lawmakers to provide more political support as well as military equipment, both lethal and non-lethal to Ukrainian soldiers. And the the quote that was so memorable from that speech was, blankets and night vision goggles are important, he said, but one cannot win a war with blankets. Uh, I know the conversation that we've had uh, before this committee, you've talked about a decision on military equipment, lethal equipment not being made yet. Could you talk a little bit, uh, that decision to do that hasn't been made yet. If you were to decide to allow lethal weapons, well, first of all, do we have a time frame for that decision?
2: Uh, well, first of all, Senator, let me just say that since the appearance by President Poroshenko before the joint session, we really have, with all of your support, plus what we are doing in Ukraine, and not just in terms of the uh, tw- uh, 1,200 soldiers and 750 National Guard we've already trained, and the next stage going into the Army and the, and the Special Forces, but also in terms of the the kind of uh, equipment that we've provided, including Humvees and UAVs and two counter artillery radars and mortar radars and all kinds of thermal vision devices and secure radios and, you know, uh, exploded ordnance robots and all these kinds of things. So we are really giving a lot more than we were at at that time. Um, I, I don't have a timetable for you on a lethal decision.
10: If, if a decision was made to allow lethal weapons, what, what would that allow? What would uh, Ukraine force be able to accomplish with those uh, lethal weapons
2: well again I don't want to speculate on what we would uh, actually go for if, if that decision were made but there are a range of issues of uh, things that they have asked for in the past
10: if, if again I'm not saying that you would do that but I mean if some of those were allowed what would the Ukraine forces be able to accomplish uh,
2: I think the original proposal that they made at a time when the separatist forces in Russia were still taking additional territory quite aggressively were things that would deal with uh, the weapons superiority in terms of dealing with grads, dealing with tanks uh, um, advancing, etc. They also have always wanted uh, more on the uh, ISR side.
10: And if this assistance were granted, do they would be able to push back uh, on those territorial gains as well as the equipment advantage you're talking about?
2: Uh, Conceivably, but as you know, we don't have offensive combat now. We have skirmishing on the line, but the hope both on the Ukrainian side and in the international community is that we can settle this through implementation of Minsk and the withdrawal of Russian forces.
10: And I believe you may have had this conversation with Senator Perdue in in relation to his questions, but what has sort of our position and uh, our our inability to uh, really affect change in, in Crimea, what has that done to our allies in the region from their perspective when it comes to U.S. assistance raid, like Georgia and others?
2: Well, I think we are, uh, as I said earlier, trying to um, change the way we approach Georgia, so our security assistance is less about preparing them to deploy elsewhere and now more about hardening uh, their self-defenses, their resilience, their ability to ensure that they don't lose Uh, further territory. So that is uh, very much in keeping with what they want. I think there is concern in the region with the increased militarization that we're seeing in Crimea and that is something that we are uh, concerned about and allies and partners are raising with Russia as well. Mm
10: -hmm. There was a, uh, I guess this past uh, January I had the opportunity to visit uh, NATO headquarters uh, in uh, Brussels, uh, visited directly with General Breedlove. I talked about uh, sort of the Russian situation, both in, in, in Ukraine and beyond, um, threats to Estonia, the Baltics, and others. Uh, how well prepared do you believe NATO is to counter the Russian threat if if it does indeed lead to aggression uh, in the Baltics or Poland?
2: Uh, well, Senator, I think this is, this is one thing we can all be proud of is the work we've done through the European Reassurance Initiative with your terrific support. And as you know, the administration is put forward a four-fold increase for $3.4 billion this year for European reassurance. We now, as compared to just two years ago, we now have uh, U.S. forces and other NATO forces, land, sea, and air in all of those countries. We have prepositioned equipment. We have a much more aggressive training schedule. We've worked with each of those countries bilaterally on the continuum of security from border security, civilian security, to military security. We now have NATO, uh, headquarters elements in each one of those six countries so it is a much tougher and harder target for Russia and we've made clear that that deterrent will continue.
10: With with that being said though do you agree or then disagree with the assessment? I believe it was a Rand study just a few months ago that said if Russia decides to move on Europe that it would just take a matter of days before they could overpower NATO. Is that an inaccurate assessment then? Uh,
2: again I haven't uh, read the I've read the summary, but not the details of the RAND study that you saw. Uh, I think a Russia that challenged NATO uh, would ultimately come to grief over that.
10: But but I mean, the assessment said it would take three days. I mean, uh, come to grief over that, I agree. I mean, it would be disastrous, but.
2: I mean, I've seen various studies that say that Russia would take some territory in initial phases, but I have every confidence that NATO would be able to restore sovereignty.
10: Do our allies in the Baltics share that confidence?
2: Uh, What they want from us is continued presence, particularly presence of American uh, forces. So these rotational um, elements that we've been able to maintain through the ERI are extremely important, where we've had, you know, 700 young Americans out there in these countries uh, on a regular rotational basis, so uh, it's on that basis that we ask you to continue to support ERI and particularly the very big increase that we've asked for in 2017.
10: And what do you anticipate in terms of the agreements uh, to fulfill their 2% requirement in Europe that will be ultimately achieved?
2: Uh, It remains a problem. We are doing better at um, reversing the slide. We have very few allies now, just a handful who are still cutting, and we are now starting to see, I think we have 12, 13 allies who have started to grow their defense budgets again, but this is very much a focus of all of our bilateral, multilateral work as we head to the Warsaw Summit to be able to say that we've definitively started to grow back to 2 percent all across the alliance.
10: Yeah, and, and I guess I, I'm running out of time here, but I would, would like to ask you this. If you could get back to me on this point, uh, with the RAND assessment, I would like to know whether or not you agree at this point in time whether or not that is an accurate assessment of NATO's capabilities uh, in Europe.
2: We'll take a look at that. Thank you. We'll get back to you.
0: Well, thank you, Madam Secretary. We appreciate uh, you being here today and your service to our country. I think, you know, obviously the, the topic today was the reforms inside Ukraine that need to occur. Um, and we obviously want to see those happen and, and understand, on the other hand, the constraints. I think you also heard from people on both sides of the aisle of a, a concern that exists relative to our push back against Russia. Uh, their ability to punch way beyond their weight, no doubt some of this, a lot of this is right in their neighborhood and, and causes them to have greater influence than otherwise they would. But, But I think, again, the balance here is that, yes, we need to continue to encourage and work with Ukraine to create the reforms that need to take place inside the country. But I think there's still a dissatisfaction, generally speaking, with the pushback that's taking place relative to Russia. And we still want to push the administration to assist Ukraine as much as possible. Uh, you know, very disappointed with the outcome in Syria um, and, uh, and Russia's ability to really take advantage of a vacuum and play an outsized role there in a way that put us in a very uh, in a, in a very difficult situation at which we shouldn't have been put into because we ourselves uh, allowed that vacuum to exist. So anyway, uh, we thank you for your service. Uh, we appreciate your comments. We look forward to working with you and with that uh, we'll call on panel two.
2: Thank you very much. And-
0: Thank you for sitting through that, and hopefully that'll uh, help you somewhat with your uh, questions uh, that you'll have in a moment. But we want to we thank our second panel for being here. Our first witness is Mr. Ian Brzezinski, Brent Scowcroft Center on International Security at the Atlantic Council in Washington, D.C. Mr. Brzezinski served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Europe and NATO Policy from 2001 to 2005. We thank you uh, for your continued involvements and in helping us with this topic. Second witness is the Honorable John E. Herbst, Director of the Dina Patri, I'm going to let you pronounce it, Eurasia Center, uh, also at the Atlantic Council from 2003 to 2006. Uh, He served as our ambassador to Ukraine. We thank you for the knowledge you're going to share with us today. Uh, If you could summarize your um, comments in about five minutes, and without objection, your written testimony will be a part of the record. And if we could begin in the order you were introduced, we'd appreciate it again. Thank you both.
11: Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Cardin, members of the committee, I'm honored to participate in this hearing addressing the progress of reform in Ukraine following the Maidan revolution and the launch of Russia's invasion of that country. Those two events transformed the course of history in Ukraine. The Maidan revolution was a powerful demonstration of popular demand for democracy and good governance and also the nation's desire to be a fully integrated member of the West. The second event, Russia's unprovoked military invasion of Crimea and Eastern Ukraine, stand amongst the most dramatic actions and President Putin's campaign to, to reestablish Moscow's control over the space of the former Soviet Union. What is at the stake is of critical interest to in the United States. If allowed to succeed, Putin's ambitions will lead to a new confrontational divide in Europe between a community defined by self-determination, democracy and rule of law, and one burdened by authoritarianism, corruption, hegemony, and occupation. It is in this context that Ukraine launched its most aggressive effort at comprehensive economic and political reform since attaining independence. This undertaking has been only made more challenging by the tragedies caused by Russia's invasion. 9,000 Ukrainian deaths, countless wounded, 1.6 million internally displaced persons, and the loss of economically valuable territory. Ukraine's reform efforts have also been undermined by Russia's decades-old campaign of subversion. One that includes information warfare, energy embargoes, economic sanctions, and terrorist and cyber attacks. Despite these challenges, Ukraine has made progress. Its tax collection, pension, and government procurement systems have improved. New vetted and trained police forces now operate in Kiev, Lviv, Odessa, and Kharkiv, and elsewhere. Anti-corruption laws have been passed, and a government austerity program is being implemented. With that said, and as was pointed out by Assistant Secretary Newland, the process of reform is far complete. It moves too slowly and remains too easily reversible. A strategy to assist Ukraine must integrate initiatives to one, impose greater costs on Russia for its aggression, two, enhance Ukraine's capacity for self-defense, three, assist Ukraine's efforts at reform, and fourth, further its integration into the Euro-Atlantic community. Towards these ends, current targeted sanctions against Russian individuals and firms should be escalated toward broader and more comprehensive sectoral sanctions, including against Russian Russian financial and energy sectors. Today's sanctions may be hurting the Russian economy in the context of low oil prices, but if their intended outcome has been to deter Russian aggression, they have failed. One specific step that was mentioned earlier today is to embargo the sale of spare parts to Russia's vulnerable refinery industry, its oil refinery industry. This step proposed to this committee by Paul Dobryansky would degrade an important source of revenues that help sustain Russian military operations. Second, NATO should significantly reinforce its presence in Central Europe. Larger and more responsive exercises and operations and the establishment of bases in Poland and the Baltic states equipped with brigade and battalion level capacities, respectively, are in order. These are reasonable steps in light of Russia's military buildup and the magnitude of its aggression in the region. Third, Western assistance has been helpful to Ukraine's armed forces. But the time is long overdue to grant Ukraine the lethal defensive equipment it has requested. The provision of anti-tank, anti-aircraft and other systems would complicate, add risk, and increase the cost of operations against Ukraine. In light of Moscow's rhetoric and its belligerent force posture, this requirement has not lost its urgency. We must do more to counter Russia's significant information campaigns. This is not just a media battle, it's also a matter of physical presence. U.S. consulates should be established in key cities, such as Odessa and Kharkiv. This would expand economic ties between these cities in the West and provide us greater situational awareness of the surrounding regions. Fifth, we should work to link Ukraine's energy sector to an emerging north-south corridor of gas and oil pipelines in Central Europe. This corridor linking the Baltic, Black, and Aegean seas promises to unify Central European energy markets and bind them into the broader European energy market. A robust Ukrainian link to the north-south corridor would further diversify Ukraine's energy supplies facilitate Ukraine's integration into an emergent single European energy market, and actually strengthen Europe's energy resiliency, Europe as a whole, by enabling it to leverage Ukraine's significant gas storage facilities. Sixth, we should assist Ukraine design a national strategy to restructure its defense industry, a very significant element of its economy, so that it can become better aligned with Western business practices and Western market structures. Finally, Assistance to Ukraine and its reform efforts should rest upon a firm embrace of Ukraine's transatlantic aspirations. Those aspirations are powerful drivers of reform. Mr. Chairman, the recommendations I listed are prudent, defensive, mutually reinforcing, and consistent with the desires of the Ukrainian people to live in peace, freedom, and under the rule of law, and to see their nation become a fully integrated member of the West. They thus also enhance the prospects Of peace in Europe. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much, Mr. Erp. Ambassador. Yes.
4: Uh, Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Cardin, members of the committee, thank you for the invitation. For more than two years, Ukraine has faced a double challenge Kremlin aggression and the crisis of reform. In May of 2014, newly elected president Poroshenko faced economic catastrophe and an advancing Russian-led finance and supplied offensive in the Donbass. Ukraine's sharp economic decline bottomed out in the third quarter of last year, which was a year of substantial reform and economic stabilization. Today there is a largely stabilized line of contact in the east between Russian forces and their proxies in the occupied territories and Ukraine's troops to the west. In short, Ukraine has pulled back from the brink of disaster, but its circumstances remain difficult. For a year and a half, the Minsk process has been the key, a key factor in the effort to bring peace to the East. Ceasefires have been in effect officially since September of 2014, but both the Minsk 1 and Minsk 2 ceasefires have been violated regularly, with most violations coming from the Russian side. The terms of the Minsk 2 agreement are similar to Minsk 1, but worse for Ukraine. Under the Minsk II ceasefire, 375 Ukrainian soldiers have died, 1,500 have been injured. Since the Minsk I ceasefire went into place, Russia has seized over 2,700 additional square kilometers of Ukrainian territory. This has not been a real ceasefire. Minsk II's terms are worse than Minsk I, but they are adequate as long as the EU insists that sanctions imposed on Moscow remain in place until Minsk II is fully implemented. Thus far, sanctions have been the most effective tool that the West has used to encourage Moscow to end its war on the Donbass. They are responsible for a 1 to 1.5% drop in the Russian GDP. And last year, Russia's GDP dropped 3.7%, wages dropped up to 10%, and the IMF expects Russian GDP to fall again this year. It is essential that sanctions stay in place. Chancellor Merkel has been key in this. She says that Russia's operations in, in Syria will not affect sanctions policy, but Chancellor Merkel's political standing is weaker as a result of the immigration crisis. If she becomes substantially weaker, the EU sanctions on Russia are in jeopardy. Her drubbing in Sunday's provincial elections was, were not a good sign. President Poroshenko and Prime Minister Yatsenyuk are the best senior team in Ukraine's history, but they must make the right decisions for reforms to succeed. Ukraine's vibrant civil society, an impressive cohort of young reformers in the Rada, and in minister and deputy minister slots have been encouraging the president and the prime minister to make those decisions. Ongoing advice and assistance from the EU, the United States, and especially the IMF are critical in helping Ukraine's leadership to make the right choices. 2015 was ultimately a successful year for reform. The budget passed in 2015 reduced public expenditures by 9% of GDP and cut the budget deficit from 10 to 2%. Parliament passed a host of laws that were also very reform-minded. Ukraine's GDP dropped 11%, but most of that was in the first half of the year. In the fourth quarter, there was no decline in GDP, and the IMF projects modest growth for Ukraine this year. While reform was substantial in 2015, it was not enough for many Ukrainians. Critics focused on the absence of any change in the Prosecutor General's office and the judiciary, and claimed that the President and the Prime Minister were not interested in going after these major sources of corruption. Earlier this year, three Reform Ministers resigned quietly. Then-Economic Minister Abramovicius resigned, complaining that he could not do his job because of corruption, and that corruption went all the way to the top. Reformers in civil society spoke up for Mr. Abramovicius. So did the US, the EU, and the IMF. In response President Poroshenko called for the removal of prosecutor general Victor Shokin and the Rada passed reform lang- reform legislation that had been blocked for months. In February two parties resigned from the coalition. Since then Mr. President's, President President Poroshenko's party has been negotiating with other parties to ensure that it retains a majority. Those negotiations continue. The President has to name a Prime Minister who can gain a majority of votes in the Rada and who is acceptable to the West and especially the IMF. This whole affair, starting with the resignation of the Economics Minister, has damaged Ukraine's reform credentials. Many observers read the headlines and assume that reform in Ukraine has not made progress. But that is not true. Progress has been made consistently since 2014. And even during this crisis, the Rada passed reform legislation. Under the current lineup in the Ukrainian government and in the Rada, there will always be one step backwards before you get the two-step forwards for reform. This is the way that progress will take place in Ukraine, and we need to understand that. The Obama administration has a mixed record regarding Moscow's aggression and its support for Ukraine. It has been a strong and effective advocate for imposing and maintaining sanctions on Russia. Dan Fried and Tori Newland uh, should get credit for that. The Obama administration has also provided important military training and some hardware to Ukraine, as Toria outlined. But the administration also understands the way reform will move in Ukraine. Vice President Biden has been a great advocate for reform in Ukraine. But the Obama administration has failed to recognize the magnitude of this crisis. President Obama has said that the crisis in Ukraine is a regional crisis. This is false. When a nuclear superpower changes borders in Europe by military force, this is a global crisis requiring strong American leadership. Mr. Putin has not hit his goal of changing the post-Cold War order in Europe, which is a vital threat to American interest. To increase the odds that Mr. Putin does not commit aggression elsewhere in Europe, we must help Ukraine defeat Moscow's war in the Donbass. At an absolute minimum, we should make the war on Ukraine by Russia as painful as possible for the Kremlin. With these goals in mind, we should provide Ukraine with robust military support, at least $1 billion a year for three years. Ukraine needs four to six more units of counter battery radar for long range missiles. Ukraine needs lethal defensive weapons to to defeat Russia. If the US had provided 25 javelins to Ukraine in January of 2015, Ukraine forces would have defeated Moscow's Debaltseva offensive. If we gave Ukraine 50 javelins today, we would make it very, very painful for Russia to continue its territorial aggression in Ukraine. There is another reason for thwarting the Kremlin aggression. Moscow's war against Ukraine, the seizure of Crimea, is the single greatest blow to the nuclear non-proliferation movement ever. Ukraine gave up its nuclear weapons in return for assurances from Russia, from Great Britain, from the United States, and from France, and we have ignored those assurances. Our economic assistance should also be much greater. It should be seen as an investment in our security, a point that former Treasury Secretary Larry Summer has made in advocating $10 billion of Western aid for Ukraine. The US should shoulder up to $5 billion of this package. It should consist of loan guarantees, direct budget support, debt swaps, as well as assistance to support reforms in key sectors such as banking. (coughs) Coupled with strong military assistance and the maintenance of sanctions on on Moscow, a large-age package would help Ukraine defeat the Kremlin's aggression and transform itself into a prosperous democracy with close links to the West. Thank you, and I'm sorry for going over my time.
0: No, Thank you very much for your testimony, and, and uh, obviously the title of this hearing has been more about reforms in Ukraine, and obviously concerns that Europe may utilize the lack of some of those reforms occurring as a reason to, to loosen sanctions, which we don't want to see happen. But could you follow up, Mr. Herbst, it, it appears that in your testimony, and I want to ask Mr. Brzezinski the same thing, that you feel right now our push towards Ukraine's and uh, your reformation process is, is not balanced, that we're not doing enough on the other side of the equation uh, to push Russia. Is that correct?
4: Absolutely. Um, our military support for Ukraine has been growing, and it's much better today than it was a year ago, but it's still inadequate. And we still worry far too much about, quote, unquote, annoying or or provoking Russia than about defending our interests in Ukraine. Because the Kremlin, Mr. Putin is vulnerable in Ukraine. His people do not want the Russian army fighting in Ukraine. And there are thousands and thousands of Russian soldiers right now. The The lethal defensive equipment we would provide would make it much more painful for Russia to commit its next offensive action. And while I'm not expecting a major offensive, the Russians are grabbing land every week or trying to grab land every week. They've they've taken at least 700 additional square kilometers under the ceasefires, the men's ceasefires. We want to make it much more painful for them to do that.
0: You heard uh, Secretary Newland speak to the fact they've not made decisions yet relative to defensive lethal weaponry. What do you think is causing the administration to, to, to be so slow in that process? actually just stall it off and it's evident it's not going to happen. But what is the reasoning for that?
4: I I think that the administration, um, the president, do do not want to provide defensive military, defensive lethal equipment to Ukraine because, quote-unquote, it will provoke Moscow. And I think there's a fundamental uh, geopolitical misunderstanding at the top. Uh, The crisis, if you understand that Changing borders in Europe by aggression is a major crisis. Then you will take steps to deal with that major crisis. Um, We have taken good steps, although not enough, to strengthen the position of NATO, especially the Baltic states and Poland and Romania. But the point is, the Kremlin has been emboldened, first by our weak reaction to its aggression in, in, in Georgia, then our weak reaction to the seizure of Crimea. If we provide Uh, javelins to Ukraine, if we provide, as Ian suggests, anti-aircraft, serious anti-aircraft capacity to Ukraine, it would make it much more painful for the Kremlin to continue its aggression in Ukraine. Uh, The President, if if you believe the article that Jeff Goldberg did in the Atlantic, that Senator Menendez referred to, the President believes that that will lead to war with Russia. That is simply false. Uh, If we permit the Kremlin to succeed in Ukraine, they 'll be emboldened to commit provocations in the Baltics, where we have an Article five obligation to defend them, and that's more likely to re- lead to war giving the Russians a free hand in Ukraine than a policy of helping Ukraine defend itself
0: yeah, coin a, a phrase one of my colleagues used but it appears that uh... Russia's appetite is growing by eating In other words, as they continue to do what they're doing, their appetite grows for that. Mr. Brzezinski, you want to to respond to the balance issue and the lack of lethal defensive weaponry?
11: Yes, sir. uh, I would say in short, if you look at our current posture and our policies towards, uh, towards Russia, they have not succeeded, specifically when it deals with Ukraine. After two years, Russia is still occupying eastern Ukraine still occupying Crimea, it's, consolidated, it's used the last two years to consolidate its position in both. In eastern Ukraine, over the last year, General Breedlove, the Sakhir commander, reported that they've moved in over a thousand pieces of heavy equipment, uh, they've tightened their command and control capacities, uh, coordination remains deep, resupply continues, they've continued to mass forces on e- Ukraine's eastern frontier, in Crimea they've been using the time to transform uh, Sevastopol and the other bases on Crimea into basically a hub of an A2AD zone, anti-area, air denial, uh, access zone, that reaches deep into Ukraine and much of the, of the Black Sea. So we, ha- we haven't had effect. And on lethal assistance, you know, it, while U.S. military assistance to Ukraine has been useful at the institutional level, helping the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense and general staff, Uh, further develop their doctrines, their personnel structures, their logistical capabilities and such. There is a real need, an urgent need, for lethal assistance at the tactical level. Why? Just look at Russia's force posture. Uh, It has those mass forces on Ukraine's eastern frontier, increased forces now in in, in Crimea. They regularly conduct SNAP exercises involving tens of thousands of forces to demonstrate capability to rapidly mobilize and deploy and conduct offensive operations into a neighboring country like like Ukraine. And Ukraine right now doesn't really have the capacity, as John pointed out, to really impose significant costs on an aggressor. And providing lethal assistance such as anti-tank weapons, anti-aircraft weapon, advanced forms of artillery, better UAVs, targeting systems, Ukraine would be in a better position to deter such aggression. It's long overdue.
0: What does uh, both of you talk to officials uh, inside the country, as we do, but from your perspective, uh, obviously we want to see reforms take place in, inside Ukraine. They've been their own worst enemy. They'd be in a very different place had they moved along um, with reforms like much of Eastern Europe did years ago. We, we understand it's a problem. I mean, it's endemic in their society. It's a holdover from the Soviet Union in many ways. So they have issues that they have to deal with. We want to push them along. We want their country to be better. We want uh, the the things that happen on the Madan to be realized uh, through a country that certainly is Western-oriented and has those types of values. And at the same time, we're concerned about uh, Europe's response to the lack of progress that may be occurring and them shifting blame, if you will, to Ukraine away from, from Russia. But you just listed a host of things that we're not doing, that we're not doing to help Ukraine. On the other hand, with the frozen conflict, actually uh, listening to the testimony, not that frozen, initial land being taken by Russia. What is the what is the what are the conversations that you hear within as we push for reform on one hand and needed reform, and on the other hand, uh, don't. Fully support, if you will, their efforts to push back against Russia. What, what kind of, what does that generate internal to uh, to Ukraine?
11: I think it sends a mixed message. I mean, when we ask Ukrainian leaders to undertake aggressive, systemic, political and economic reform, we're asking them, we're encouraging them, their people are asking them, to undertake changes that involve a certain amount of risk. Change creates opportunities and vulnerabilities, even as you're pursuing higher ends. And if we don't complement our efforts to to support and pressure reform in in Ukraine with a stronger position against Russia, I think we're actually creating risk to the reform process. Russia's actions are not just designed to seize territory, they're designed also to undercut the prospects of reform. And so we have to impose a higher penalty on, on, on Russia. It's stunning to me that after two years in which Russia has been basically not only occupying territory of Ukraine, but sustaining a campaign of information warfare, economic embargoes, cyber attacks, even terrorism, we haven't increased the pressure on Russia. We haven't transformed our sanctions from targeted sanctions that basically hit a limited number of individuals and entities including I entities that have very little relationships with, 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 with the West, such as their arms um, in, in industry. We haven't escalated. We haven't really leveraged the full weight of our economic power a- against Russia. That resonates in Ukraine, and I think makes them less confident to take the steps that are inherently risky, albeit
0: necessary.
4: Mr. Arbst. Ambassador, excuse Brian. me. I would endorse Ian's points on the impact of our reluctance to provide more military assistance and our less, not as aggressive, as it could be sanctions policy. But I would add one more dimension. Uh, the, we provide Ukraine substantial economic assistance, but just not nearly enough. Uh, we are asking them to make reforms that are politically dangerous, all about in their interest. And if we provided greater assistance, it would make the risk of those reforms less. And again, the justification for greatly increasing our already substantial assistance is, this is a direct, of direct interest to our security. Because again, if the Kremlin succeeds in Ukraine, the odds go up that they'll do something nasty vis-a-vis another, a, NATO, a NATO country. And we want to we defeat them or stop them in Ukraine.
0: Thank you both. Senator Cardin.
1: Well, uh, thank you both for your testimony. It's very interesting. Both of you have a common theme here. That we have to be more aggressive in supporting Ukraine and uh, isolating Russia's influence. Uh, you point out, Mr. Brzezinski, that we should uh, that the existing sanctions, uh, although they have certainly had an impact and haven't had the desired results, therefore we should look at more targeted sanctions in addition to the current sanctions and. And be more aggressive in regards to isolating Russia. You also point out, I thought, a very good suggestion about public diplomacy by setting up consulate offices in different parts of Ukraine to counter the the public relations uh, battle that Russia has been waging within Ukraine. I thought that was a good suggestion. And Ambassador Herbst, you've been pretty aggressive. $5 billion, that's a pretty big number uh, of additional aid. And of course, the military assistance, which is something our committee has looked at in the past and been very sympathetic to military assistance for Ukraine. Uh, When we look at this realistically, it looks like it's moving in the other direction, (laughs) that uh, the budget funds are tight and the chances of getting that type of support from the United States is uh, not likely. And we are confronting a June deadline in Europe as to whether they will continue the sanctions, the existing sanctions, let alone strengthening those sanctions. So it looks like we're moving in the opposite direction. So I would welcome your observations on what the impact would be on Ukraine if Europe does not extend its sanctions in June and the current status quo remains. That is, that Minsk II has not been implemented.
4: Uh, that would be a disaster. Uh, That would remove the one substantial reason that the West has given to Russia to back off its aggression. It would also greatly dishearten um, the whole political class in Ukraine, whether dealing with the war in the East or dealing with reform. Uh, While I think that we should increase sanctions and we should tie that to specific Russian actions, I suspect if we can retain sanctions, keep them in place, that may be enough on that front. And while it would be a disaster if they're, they're removed, I would say as long as Chancellor Merkel's position remains solid, they'll stay in place. But again, we've just seen elections, regional elections in Germany, which, which weaken her. How much, we'll, we'll wait and see. But this, this is something very important. There, there's, one, there's one other element, though, that could keep sanctions in place. The United States holds a trump card. It's a very um, controversial trump card, and that is um, the SWIFT option. We we are the we run the, the international payment system. We could suspend Russia from the SWIFT from SWIFT. Uh, I suspect that if Europe were to truly weaken in its resolve to maintain sanctions, and Amer- American putting into play the notion that in that case we might have to use SWIFT would help strengthen the European spine. Thank you. Mr. Brzezinski.
11: Sir, if uh, Europe were to abandon the sanctions that it currently has imposed on Russia for Russia's aggression against Ukraine and its occupation of part of Ukraine, it would amount to a de facto acceptance of a new partition of Europe. The West will have communicated to Russia that it's willing to live with a Russia that is occupying and trying to assert hegemony over its neighbors. And that would return us back to uh, an era we thought had long passed. If the West shows the will necessary to sustain those those sanctions, I'm not convinced that's a satisfactory situation because I think what we would then expect is continuation of the status quo which is Russia using its proximity and its geopolitical leverage, its economic leverage, its energy leverage, its military activities, to further eat away at Ukraine, to further weaken Ukraine, to destabilize Ukraine, and not just Ukraine, but Georgia and maybe other states along its periphery. That's why I think we need to move to a new stage uh, in our engagement with Russia on this issue, which means imposing harsher penalties for Russian aggression. I think moving to the SWIFT is something that, that's, that's long overdue, I think sectoral sanctions on the energy and the financial sections are long overdue. We have an economic advantage of almost uh, 15 to one. If you, if you tally up the GMP of Europe uh, and the United States, it's higher than that against Russia. We should be leveraging that.
1: So I don't disagree with your assessment of the impact if the sanctions in Europe were removed under current circumstances and that we should be more strategic and stronger in our messaging. But let me get to the second part of this. The concern that we have on the extension of sanctions in Europe is that there will be a justification given that Ukraine hasn't implemented its aspects of Minsk as it relates to decentralization, but also uh, it's uh, dealing with uh, good governance uh, reforms that have yet to be fully implemented, as we've already pointed out in the with Secretary Newland. And Russia has been systematic in marginalizing civil societies, the classification of civil societies as foreign agents or undesirables, cutting off the opportunity for civil society activities within their own country. But we've seen over the last couple of decades a weakening of the transatlantic ties between uh, civil societies and and, uh, our support. Uh, In Ukraine, it would be helpful if we had stronger community connections between the United States and civil societies, recognizing that historically we're going to be judged by how aggressive we were in the reforms in Ukraine. I just would like to know your comments as to whether there shouldn't be greater efforts made to help civil societies in Ukraine and in Europe, I might say, as well, of course, as our connections within Russia.
11: Uh, Let me address two points that that, that you raised, the one on civil society and then one on Minsk. I I think it's important to remember that the failure of Minsk hasn't been because of Ukraine. It's been a a failure of Russia to live up to the very agreements it signed.
1: I don't disagree with that. I just say it it could be used as justification by Europe because there hasn't been full... Uh, compliance by Ukraine. I agree with you that Russia is the is the uh, aggressor. Russia is the one invaded Crimea took it over, created East, East uh, Ukraine. That's, we'll never. I recognize that. I'm concerned about what might be happening in Europe.
11: Uh, I think your your fear is is justified, and we actually see that happening. We see Europeans placing more pressure on Ukraine, quote unquote, live up to its dimensions of Minsk, and not applying equal pressure on Russia to live up to its side of, of Minsk. But to counter that dialogue requires, I think, stronger American leadership. We need to make clear to the Europeans that the pressure needs to be directed in the sequence that uh, Tory Lunen uh, articulated. It should be first on Russia fulfilling its dimensions of the Minsk agreement, withdrawal of forces, releases, release, release of prisoners and hostage, allowing the OSCE to get full access, uh, allowing Ukraine to control its borders. Then the other steps will come into play. Regarding civil society, I think that's an area that that's really needs uh, deeper exploration and perhaps di- direct support. If we're going to fight uh, corruption in Ukraine, it's very useful, of course, to work with the existing authorities. But the key to fighting corruption in, in a democracy, in an emerging democracy, I think really is to build up civil society, its NGOs, its, its, its press, to facilitate greater transparency so that the people themselves feel that they have a greater grip on how money is being used, how decisions are being made, and can then leverage that knowledge to force more effective change. So I think you're spot on. If more citizens can be directed to NGOs, we should
4: do that. Thank you. Uh, My view is not surprisingly, rather similar to Ian's On, on Minsk. The most important thing to remember is that the immediate commitments that Russia has undertaken have not been fulfilled. They're shooting every day, most of it coming from the Russian side. There's been no real pullback of Russian military equipment. It's Russia and the separatists who don't permit the OSCE to move around the occupied territories. There's no way you can expect to hold an election under those circumstances. So Ukraine's commitment logically comes next, comes second. Uh, and this is a point which simply needs to be reiterated um, forcefully and clearly to our European friends. Regarding reform. Uh, you're absolutely right, Senator, that civil society is critical. I believe the U.S. has done a pretty good job in terms of promoting civil society in Ukraine. And I think that the administration understands that to ensure that there is reform in Ukraine, you need to have regular contact with civil society and with reformers in the government. And I think Vice President Biden's done a very good job on, on, this, on this account. Uh, regarding reform and implementation of Minsk, um you're absolutely right that those in Europe who don't want sanctions will point to the ugly headlines in Ukraine and say, "Look, they're not reformers, why should we be doing sanctions? But again, if you understand the stage of society, a stage of history that Ukraine is in right now, where you have senior level levels in the government, senior members in society, especially the oligarchs, not so keen on fast reform. Uh, you know that but reform is necessary, then you'll see, Steps backwards, stepwards to the side before there's progress. And again, the crisis of the past six weeks has been very ugly, but in this crisis, serious reform legislation has been passed, and there has been progress. We simply need to repeat this to our friends in Europe so they understand it. Thank you. I appreciate
0: your comments. Ambassador, we thank you for being here. Mr. Brzezinski, thank you. Look, I, I do want to correct one thing for the record. The Swiss system is a European system, not an American system. So just for what it's worth, as we have in the past, we would need to, uh, to work with Europe on that if we were ever to, to utilize it. Um, I think that you know, the, the essence of today's hearing is to look to the reforms in Ukraine that need to take place. I do want to say this is, the context is, uh, almost all of our hearings have been about pushing back against Russia and the kind of things we can do to support Ukraine. Uh, I think the hearing shouldn't be misunderstood. We're, we're concerned about the issue that Senator Cardin brought up, myself and others, and that is that, that uh, uh, we're concerned about Europe looking to the lack of reforms in Ukraine as a reason to back away from some of the sanctions that are in place. We're only speaking to what we're seeing happen right now in, in Europe as they have the lowest self-confidence level that probably ha- they've had in 50 years. and Their concerns about what, uh, what is happening in the region to them, their, their, you know what's happening with Chancellor Merkel, what's happening with Brexit, what's happening with refugees, what's happening with their economic and fiscal issues. And we're looking to ways to, to encourage Ukraine to continue on. At the same time, uh, we understand that uh, the pressure by the administration on Russia has not been what most of us would have liked to have seen occur. So we thank you again for adding context and adding a book into the earlier testimony. We hope that you'll answer questions promptly. I know you will. Uh, we're going to keep the record open uh, to the close of business Thursday. Uh, Thank you again both for being here. Uh, You've been a valuable addition to this uh, hearing, and we look forward to seeing you again. With that, the committee is adjourned.